Hey, Real Talkers. Andrew McDougall held the highest-profile communications job in Canada as Prime Minister Stephen Harper's director of comms. His boss, generally remembered as tight-lipped around media and hostile towards scientific researchers. Uh, now a director at Trafalgar Strategy in the UK, McDougall talks to us in this episode about the evolution of his position on the politics of climate action, how he thinks the Harper era compares to the Trudeau and Poliev eras, the UK's renewable spoon, and the future of Canada's energy industry. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. agree we'd like to keep politics out of science and maybe infuse a little more science into politics can we also agree that a lot of people will immediately jump into this argument and say well are we talking about science that's settled are we talking about science that has reached consensus around the world today we're talking about politics and climate change in just a second we're going to follow up on an interview that we first brought you back in june at that time essentially what felt like Western Canada was on fire. The wildfire season in BC and Alberta, absolutely horrific, shattering records in a bad way. And it wasn't limited to that part of the country. John Valen joined us. His book, Fire Weather, was the talk of the town. Everybody was paying attention to what he had to say about the future of wildfire in Canada, as he described it, a century of fire. That was back on June 20th. Well, just a short time ago, a pretty notable name in Canadian politics, Prime Minister Stephen Harper's former director of communications, praised the book and talked about how everybody needs to read it. Andrew McDougall tweeted that Fire Weather by John Valent is as brilliant as all the top 10 books of the year charts say it is. He called it eye-opening, cinematic, terrifying, clarifying, and people started to talk. Is it more significant when a conservative prime minister's comms director starts acknowledging that we need to get more serious about climate change? Or is that an unfair observation to make? Well, I'm thrilled that Andrew McDougall has agreed to join us this morning. That coming up in just a moment. Plus, what prompted, do we call him drug advocate? drug entrepreneur seems like everybody in Canada knows the name Dana Larson and if you didn't before you're probably paying attention to the fact that over the holidays he mailed so-called magic mushrooms to every single one of BC's MLAs that's a different take on holiday gifts you know, some of them have been really reacting strongly to this, mm -hmm. acting like he sent sort of anthrax in the mail, talking about how the drugs need to be handed mm -hmm. over to the proper authorities and Larson's breaking the law by what he's doing. He's calling them pearl clutchers, and he's agreed to talk to us as well today. We'll find out why he's doing what he's doing and maybe talk about the future of shrooms in Canada. A lot of people are talking about them for mental health treatments, uh, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists sure. starting to look to psilocybins as, as potentially an, an avenue of treatment for people with mental health issues, including anxiety, depression, and otherwise. I'm expecting a good conversation there. Plus, our Real Talk email inbox, maybe like yours, coming back from the holidays, is an absolute mess, but in the best way. It's chock full of takes from audience members like Garth 
and Gabe and Carolyn and Jillian. And we're going to get to their, their emails today about climate hypocrisy, about the reputation of Canadian oil and gas. And about that new professional women's hockey league, the PWHL. Have you watched they had any a great of that? start there? Yeah, like I saw they were setting some some big records for attendance at the yeah. game in Ottawa and stuff like that. So it seems that like incredible. everybody, regardless of, of where they are in the hockey community, or for a lot of people maybe even new to it, uh, everybody's really cheering for this one to succeed. It's not the first time yeah. that they've attempted a league uh, featuring the best female players in the world Mm -hmm. Uh, but this one has a bit of a different vibe to it it's got they're they're getting really chippy out there thousands of people out to their first few games i'm not sure what's happening here are they allowed to check because there's a lot of checking going on a lot of body contact there's also a lot of really impression there was no checking did you see the uh did you see the rule that they have where if a shorthanded goal is scored the other player comes out of the the power play ends that's a rule i'd love to see in the nhl anyway jillian's got a hot take on the pwhl and we'll get that uh to that today uh as well this episode wouldn't be happening without the support of Real Talk partners like Business Career College. And this is a quick message uh, to those of you who are looking for a rewarding and high-paying career without a university degree. Uh, You can get started as an insurance professional with Business Career College today. You know, in Canada, insurance agents uh, in just a short period of time can be earning $90,000 annually. All you need to do is take an approved course and pass your licensing exam. Business Career College offers industry-leading approved courses in life insurance, property and casualty insurance, Plus, they offer expert instructors that are passionate about helping you launch your new career. Right now, a great offer into 2024 for Real Talkers. You can save 15% on any BCC insurance course with the code REALTALK. That's all one word, REALTALK, at businesscareercollege.com. All right, let's tee this up. It was back on June 20th. It seemed like BC and Alberta was on fire. I probably don't have to remind you about what that was like. I mean, air pollution, the the impact of that fire was being felt. You remember when the mayor of Boston was commenting on it? It was a reality across North America and the talk of the global community. John Valent, author of Fireweather, joined us. And and here's a, a brief bit of what he had to say. It seems ludicrous to me to be concerned about a 17 cent increase frankly, in anything, when you compare it to the absolutely traumatizing and billion-dollar costs of a major flood or a major fire. And nobody wants to go through that again. And I think almost anybody that you spoke to would say, I would like to do things in my life that would reduce the likelihood of that happening again. Hmm. And, you know, this is a big ask to get people to act on climate. It's so huge. It's so abstract, it's quite scary, that it's kind of easier to retreat to these sort of safer, more prosaic arguments and, frankly, feelings, you know, of, well, that guy's just trying to take my job away. And we know that that's not true. And we also know that the green energy sector is absolutely exploding right now. So in terms of job opportunities, uh, there's it's only going to grow through the through this decade. And we're in a you know, we're in a once in a century energy transition. Mm-hmm. And that it happened with petroleum, too. There was a time when there wasn't adequate petroleum inter- infrastructure and there were all kinds of issues and glitches and we worked through them. And now, you know, the petroleum distribution system now is is one of the greatest feats of engineering ever performed across the globe. It's really miraculous. Well, we can do the same thing with renewable energy, especially building on this incredible experience we've developed over the past century, perfecting the petroleum distribution system. 
So we're in a good place to make a, a really elegant, positive, and profitable transition. That was John Valens on this show on June 20th. If you want to watch that full interview, just go to the show notes and we'll have it listed for you there. His book caught the attention of Andrew McDougall, uh, who's a director at Trafalgar Strategy in the UK. Uh, you've probably read his columns, uh, national columns, including in the Ottawa Citizen and, of course, uh, former director of communications for Prime Minister Stephen Harper joining us live this morning. Thanks for making time for us. It's nice to see you. My pleasure. Good to be on with you. Yeah. How, how did John Phelan's book get on your radar in the first place? It obviously made an impression on you. Yeah, well, I read like a fiend, Ryan. I read about 120, 130 books a year. Jeez. And, you know, I usually take the, the weekend papers here in the UK and go through the book section. And towards the end of the year, as you know, they'll do their their recommended top 10 uh, books of the year. And John's book came up in quite a few of them. I, I'd heard about it before uh, and just hadn't got around to buying it. And uh, it, it kept coming up. So I thought uh, somebody gave me a gift, uh, a book that I'd already read. So I returned it at the shop and his book was uh, by the counter. And so it was easy just to swap it in. And I picked it up uh, and read it in about a day um, and uh, just got sucked right into it. And, he, you know, he writes like a dream. And it was a very cinematic telling of a very horrible incident uh, up in Fort McMurray. Um, and then obviously prompts the, the wider discussion towards the end of the book about, you know, what, what do we need to do about this? Yeah. Um, and and I, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's really an easy, I would say easy. It's a very tough read in that obviously you feel for for that community and what it went through. And then when you layer on the knowledge, like you said, that, that you know, last summer, how horrific it was um, across the continent. And, and it does show that this is not something that's going away. And he, I thought John laid it out really well, why it's not going away in terms of looking at forests and the boreal forests in particular as a giant matchbook. Uh, and, and, you know, the planet's a tinderbox now. And that and that's the kind of message of the book is that these conditions uh, don't get better by not doing anything. They get worse. And so then we have a question about what to do about it. Yeah, never mind what's happening right now. I don't know how, how, how much you've been speaking with people in, in, in our neck of the woods in Western Canada right now, but there's virtually no snow anywhere. Uh, with some exceptions, but people are already looking to the spring, worried about what the implications will be uh, with wildfire. It, it's tough to ask you. I mean, you just sort of summarized the book nicely. I'm not asking you to to, to essentially give us the Coles notes, but when you describe it as eye-opening, what, what was it particularly about that book that was eye-opening to you, would you say? I, I think just the physics behind it, Ryan, about how these fires propagate and their characteristics and the behavior of the fire. Because I think I, like many people, who come to the book think of fire in a very outdated way and that oh it comes up and then you can put it out and i think what john laid out is is the conditions in, in a lot of our forests around the world are such that traditional firefighting techniques basically have no impact on it and it can go to from zero to 100 in virtually no time and and that to me felt new in terms of having it laid out that way in in seeing the kind of task whether that's northern california the province of alberta bc you know, and then when you start considering uh, that the Arctic areas are now tundra is being lit on fire um, by lightning, and that's something Greenland uh, has has gone up in flames. So just just even that thought of thinking, you know, Greenland burning, how is that possible? I think that was the kind of just learning a bit more about the physics of the movement of fire uh, and the chemistry behind it, and basically modern construction techniques and the fact that we've now pushed out so far into nature. Uh, just makes for a very flammable situation. And, and sadly, you know, as the images we're looking at show you that that has devastating impacts and expensive impacts. And, and you know, to see these columns of fire and smoke 
shooting 35, 40,000 feet up into the air, into the atmosphere, um, should be a wake up call. Yeah, we talked to John in that interview. People can hear it about how um, State Farm and other insurers in California, as an example, aren't even offering wildfire insurance in some regions. I mean, the new reality uh, is going to hit us on a number of fronts. A friend of mine, real politico, you know, has been a campaign manager at one point, was a candidate, actually put your tweet on my radar and, and, and sort of went, whoa, like thought it was pretty significant that Harper's former comms czar was, was tweeting praise about a book on climate change. Do you bristle at that or can you understand why somebody would think that that's more significant than the average person reviewing a book? Yeah, I, I wish it it wasn't notable, Ryan, but I guess I understand why, you know, and certainly in this age, look, if I write a column telling everybody that Justin Trudeau sucks, you know, you get the kind of usual reaction that you would get. If I write a column about how Pierre Polyev is, is doing something wrong, that gets attention, although from a different side. And I guess when people run counter to to a narrative, but I, I know so many conservatives that that not only care about the climate, but actually come up uh with solutions on it. And if you look at when John Valent went to, to Parliament and testified, he was sat next to Mark Cameron, a former colleague of mine, who does work on the environment. And, and I think, you know, the lesson for me is, is, you know, a small C conservative, is that markets have to have a role in, in finding uh, the solution on climate change. And as you note, renewables, uh, you know, the green energy market is going and the money will go there and institutional investors are going there. It's just, can we get there quickly enough? Yeah, uh, politics is an inevitability. Obviously, it's how things happen. It's how laws are made. It's how, it's how uh, you know, obviously financial incentives oftentimes materialize. What, what's your assessment of, of how the politics of climate change have evolved or changed or not uh, from your time in the prime minister's office to present day in Canada? I assume you're still keeping a keen eye on what's happening in Ottawa. Yeah, look, I think the short answer, Ryan, is that Pierre Polyev would rather say nothing on climate change and just keep the debate focused uh, on cost of living, of which obviously a carbon tax does play into. And we've seen him have quite a bit of political success there, especially with energy markets being what they are after Russia invaded Ukraine. You know, I, I think that the, the big difficulty in politics always is when you have a very complex policy problem um, that cannot be resolved with a single action or in a single mandate requiring sustained action over time, that becomes more difficult to do and even more difficult in the current environment that we live in with the information economy that we're in that makes polarization and, and kind of the fragmentation into camps that much easier. You know, I think that's that's different even to my time in, in Harper's office, which was only 10 years ago. But the information economy has moved on a long way from there and it incentivizes us to fight um, to sequester into camps and, and to not be able to show weakness of, of conceding that the other side has a point. And I think you also then combine that with the fact that we've been talking about climate change as an issue. And John teases some of this out. You know, these debates are happening in Congress in the 1950s and, and the 1970s and 80s is when it kind of came up into the public consciousness as, you know, the greenhouse effect, and, which I remember talking about as a kid. And I remember Severn Kala Suzuki going to the Rio summit in 1992 and, and casting aspersions on the leadership class then. And so you think it's been, we've been talking about it a long time and people haven't seen the world end in that time. Mm. And now by the time action is really pressing and really need to get a move on, it's been talked about for so long and we've now been pushed into camps that that makes doing anything about it that much more difficult. Uh, and, and that's the worrying thing. And, and when you look at some of the facts that the book and others have laid out, you know, it's not just a question of stopping what we're doing and things will dissipate. 
what we've done to the environment, to the atmosphere will persist until we find ways to take that out of the atmosphere. And, and of course, you know, the, the trouble there is that as more forests burn, they have been traditionally a big source of, of what takes carbon out of the atmosphere um, and, and converts it into things that we like. Um, so we have to find ways to do that now. And we're running short on time, and people have heard about this for a long time without seeing an impact in their lives. And more to the point, Ryan, here's the, the really hard part. It has to change the way we live on a day-to-day -day basis. And in North America in particular, that is very difficult to do. It's a car-driving, truck-driving uh, society, suburban, long commutes, uh, huge expanse of territory. It's not an easy thing to crack. And getting people to give up their standard way of living is, a, is the hardest ask a politician can make of anyone. And nobody's found an easy way to do that yet. Yeah, especially when people start referring to I, I remember getting into it with Jason Kenny once in, in an interview. This was before he was premier. Actually, he just become leader of the PCs at the time. And we got into kind of a semantics argument on the radio about whether it should be called a carbon levy or a carbon price. Uh, and it's funny how the, 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 the power that language has once you start talking about altering people's behavior, it, it kind of triggers that same thing. Like, I don't know if people don't like to be told what to do or people don't like to be forced into a position or forced to make decisions what's your assessment of of the current federal government's play on this i mean it's, it's obviously been a bit of a rocky road for the liberals recently the whole heating oil thing in atlantic canada now saskatchewan premier scott moe is not collecting certain taxes for the feds that the plastics ban has got a lot of people talking the supreme court has been a player in the storylines what are you making of all of this yeah it, it is chaos is i don't think it's too too short but i think you hit on an important point there ryan is that you have to meet people halfway or meet them where they are and i think if i were to ascribe one sin to the political left it is that they are too quick to heap scorn on people who don't agree with them and will browbeat them um you know you're stupid if you don't get this how could you not want to do something about this where in the reality in canada anyway is that the major energy producing parts of the country are politically conservative and and as you well know, that the history between uh, any politician named Trudeau and the energy industry in Canada is, is fraught with peril. And so this is kind of the second coming in terms of, of Trudeau the Sun and the carbon tax. It's not the National Energy Program, but it is a carbon tax. And, and that language matters. Taxes we don't like. But that's the whole point. As somebody who believes in markets, you have to price the things you don't want. Uh, and, and take taxes off the things you do want. And ironically, I think when you look back to what Stefan Dion was proposing in 2008 with his green shift, you know, that was a much more simple communication to do. We tax bad, we take tax off good. So we put a tax on your energy price, we take it off your income tax, we take it off things that you want to keep more of, you know, your hard-earned money. And and that's the thing that, that I think, and, and look, conservative politicians will acknowledge this as well in their behavior, if not their words, they're the first ones to kind of go. I think I saw, I was at Derek Philibrandt going out and filling up every gas can he had and putting it in the back of his truck because prices were going up. Yeah, prices work. Prices matter. If you make things more expensive, we'll use less of them. And so you can't deny that logic, I, I don't think, as a conservative, a market-believing conservative. But you also have to meet people halfway and realize that it is a big ask, a big imposition, and some people suffer more. And that's where Trudeau's gotten himself into such a muddle is he's now trying to adjudicate on a case by case as people suffering and, and what deserves relief and doesn't. And you know, his carbon tax plan has had that from the start, whether you're looking at farmers, whether you're looking at, you know, that there are some differences in application. And now with the home heating oil, 
even though it was done to assuage a lot of political angle, uh, anger in Atlantic Canada, it does apply across the country. And, and there is a lot of, of that fuel use outside of Atlantic Canada. It's just made everything a mess. And if you're explaining in government, you're losing. If you have a very complex policy, you're, you're asking almost the impossible now to communicate that in this information environment that we live in. You know, good luck to you trying to trying to get nuance and complexity through, uh, you know, the, the, the miasma of social media. Uh, if you're just tuning in, listening to the live streaming audio on uh, the Mixler audio app presented by California Closets, we're talking to Andrew McDougall with Trafalgar Strategy, uh, joining us from the UK, former comms boss for Stephen Harper. Can we can we get into a little bit what's what's going on in, in Britain? Uh, it's really interesting in the context of renewables, uh, the Guardian reporting that uh, in Britain, the use of gas and coal for electricity is the lowest level since 1957. Uh, renewables, uh, a record 42 percent contribution to demand this under a conservative government. Uh, what's working in the UK and, and how do you think that might apply or might transition over to Canada? Yeah, you have to use what what nature gave you, Ryan. I think is the thing, and and as an island surrounded uh, by water, you know, offshore wind is certainly something you can do. And if you look at the coal industry here, it was made uneconomic, you know, throughout the twentieth century. And Thatcher took the decision to close most of the pits because the demand wasn't there anymore, uh, whether from abroad or just a different energy mix. As Britain really changed its its energy infrastructure in the seventies to accommodate gas to heat homes. Um, and so, you know, if you look in, in Canada, you have a province like Quebec that has so much hydro resource that for them to get to targets is an easier thing uh, than Alberta, say. And then if you look at the economic well-being of the country, you know, to, to leave Alberta's resources in the ground is a big hit, would be a big impact on Canada's national economy. And Stephen Harper's point of view throughout this was look, the world's going to need this kind of resource for a while. It might as well be good democratic law-abiding Canada that does it and not, say, Venezuela or Saudi Arabia, some of the less, uh, you know, salubrious uh, nations around town. Uh, and, and and so I think if you look to the UK, it's, it's a combination of luck and policy. And the policy has been done. But even there, Rishi Sunak is, is now uh, caught in a trap um, trying to water down some of the net zero commitments. Because if you look at, say, a policy like um, uh, heat pumps, for example, and switching from gas boilers, which ho- uh, heat most homes here in the UK, uh, most most homes here are poorly insulated and quite old. You know, mine, for example, is a 110 year old pile of, of late Victorian bricks, uh, and it doesn't keep heat in that well in the winter. And I heat it with a gas boiler. If I were to put a heat pump in, that would cost about 13,000 pounds Jeez. to do that. And if you look at that cost and the fact that with Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, gas and energy prices have inverted to the wrong way. So it would actually be more expensive to run the heat pump uh, than the gas boiler. Um, and so you, to make that ask in a cost of living crisis, e- even for someone like me who does fairly well in life, I don't have 13,000 pounds to put down on, on a heat pump. And while the government will subsidize that to a degree, it's still an outlay of six to 7,000 pounds for the average person. I don't know too many families that have that. So that's the ask governments are making. And, you know, I think on, on the renewables front, I think that case has been made and won now. Uh, on nuclear, unfortunately, we've had a generation that has grown up fearful of nuclear and has let a lot of the existing uh, nuclear power plant infrastructure whittle away and not replace it. Certainly in the UK, all the, the uh, nuclear power plants will be offline by 2028, I think it is. And the new ones aren't being built fast enough because guess what? It's very expensive and complex technology. 
So we, we're facing a lag generationally that we, we haven't done the things we could do on things like nuclear. And now we're trying to rush to do everything all at once when inflation's up and life is pretty expensive anyway. And that's a tough, and that's why, you know, Sunak's struggling, just like Trudeau's struggling. If you're in power now, facing a cost of living crisis, high inflation and, and high energy prices, guess what? The climate's going to lose out on the retail side of, of politics. We talked about this all and, the time. And even when you ask people what, like, you know, if an election were to be held right now, there's polling all the time around this, right? Obviously, you pay attention to it. It's like if, you know, what would be your number one election issue or what would be your ballot box question? And when you're talking about affordability, climate drops way down. But then you get people like John Valent who are sounding the alarms saying, you know, it's understandable, number one, when, it, when a single mom or a single dad is going like, I don't know you know, whether or not we're going to pay our hydro bill or whether we're going to put food on the table this month, that's an immediate concern. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you can simply push all other concerns away. I mean, the, I think that people invoke the word crisis when talking about climate change with good evidence behind it. You know, it's 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 like fascinating how the human brain works and how we prioritize what matters most to us. Yeah, sure. And, and then you look at government's prioritization as well. And it'd be, it'd be wonderful if the governments were all not reeling under a load of debt and already hyperextended on on their finance, you know, and and the kind of interventions you'll take, like say if you wanted to subsidize everybody to get a heat pump, that would be many many tens of billions of dollars or pounds, and governments don't have that because we've just been through COVID, we went through the financial crisis before that, we have populations that are aging, you know, in Canada where you used to have six or seven workers to every retiree, you're down closer to two to one now. You have burgeoning or, or bursting healthcare costs. So governments can't solve every problem. So there's there's all these things that are stacked against climate action. Uh, before you even get to the fact that some people just don't believe it and just don't buy it. Um, and, and so that's where, you know, we need people to be able to come to these conversations, not from a place of hostility or suspicion. And I think one of the most powerful sections in John's book was when he dug up the original uh, debate in Congress, and you hear Democrat and Republicans speaking respectfully about the science that they're learning about, about this new fact that, that the CO2 going into the atmosphere from the burning of fossil fuels does seem to produce a greenhouse effect, and what might we do about that? And that's the other thing you'll learn, is the longer you let these problems fester, the, the more expensive they get to solve. And, and God, are we running into that in spades now? If we could have taken a small action in the late 70s or early 80s, uh, we would be one, where, uh, one place, but now we're not. And if you look down, even now, even with what we know, you know, the most popular vehicle in North America is still uh, a pickup truck uh, by a wide margin. And we've taken all the advances in technology and fuel efficiency and just made bigger cars uh, instead of, you know, what we thought in the 80s. You remember like, when the Japanese manufacturers were coming over and making these little you know, the little Honda Civic coupes and we're in the North America was still the land of the big beast automobile. And, and they thought, you know, we thought they were eating our lunch that way. And now it's flipped all the way back around. So we're in a muddle. And, you know, the, the trick is to galvanize people to action without patronizing them and without, without making them feel useless either. Because when you look at a problem, a collective action problem, a problem this big, no one person's going to solve it on their own. You know, I, I've lived here for 10 years in the UK. I've never had a car. I take public transport. I do all my recycling. I, I'm not wasteful. I, I try to be a good citizen, but that alone won't do it. So people feel futile uh, in, in the face of this challenge. And so it's up to leaders to find ways to marshal us together uh, into a thing. And, and that will mean advances in technology. It will mean subsidizing this transition. It will mean encouraging uh, through the tax system 
the kind of behaviors we want. And and hopefully we can get to, to a more rational conversation on that place. This is like a chicken and the egg thing, though. I mean, I've lived in Britain for a year, many years ago, too. And like the the uh, you know, the, the public transit of the, the, the network there is remarkable. It's very easy to use. So everybody uses it. Um, it's it's one of these sort of like if you build it, they will come things right where Canadian cities are needing to invest. I mean, in our home city of Edmonton, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in transit in transit infrastructure, and it's it's been almost almost a joke um, how it's rolled out. The the you know years long delays and cost overruns, and there's a lot of cynicism around public transit. That doesn't mean it's not important or part of an important strategy, but it's it's a very different conversation in North American cities than it is in European cities when you talk about things like train travel or, or, or like a network like London has with its tube. Uh, you, you touch, Andrew, on, on you know, you, you said there's, you know, people that just don't believe it. And I kind of referenced it in my introduction to you as well. People that, that ask whether or not the science is settled. We've gotten into vigorous debates on this show on whether or not there's even such a thing as settled science. And I think most researchers will say that it's, a, it's an ongoing and continuous process. Uh, your former boss had, had obviously a very contentious relationship with media, had a reputation for silencing uh, researchers and, and scientists with the benefit of retrospect. When you look back on your time in the PMO, how damaging do you think that was to climate action in Canada through those years and, and even up to now? I, I, I think that's overblown, Ryan. I think that, you know, the, the big fuss about that was, was making sure that the minister and the department was comfortable with what, the department scientists were out there saying and that the government had a position and didn't think anybody from the government of Canada should be out there speaking against the government's position. But regardless, if you look at what Justin Trudeau brought to the Paris Agreement, it was Stephen Harper's targets. Uh, and, and he brought those and, and said that Canada's back. So, you know, I, I think if you look at the challenge from my former boss, I think it was that you were looking at a sector that was very important and still is to the Canadian economy. You're looking to nations in the world like China and India that can blow us out of the water with respect to their contributions to it. So anything Canada does in isolation isn't going to be a game changer. And so it's how do you do the things that set you up to be that productive player without hurting yourself unnecessarily until the time that the world is ready to take action together? That's a very difficult thing to, to, to figure out when you're the leader of a country. And, and I think it's, you know, you'd be, you can't be a Canadian leader and ignore those competing tensions. And if you look at Justin Trudeau's run into those as well, buying a pipeline uh, when it looked like that was the only alternative left, right? These aren't easy questions. And for a leader to look at his fellow citizens in the face and go, look, you're the dinosaur industry. We will be phasing you out. Uh, is a very difficult one. And it's difficult in the face of if you were to push forward and do that within a couple of years, the planet wouldn't be saved because China's bringing more coal capacity online. You know, uh, Saudi Arabia is still digging things out of the ground because it's super cheap and easy. I mean, they can break even on a $5 barrel of oil versus the oil sands, which I think is kind of somewhere in $50 and $60 range, I think, if not a bit higher. So it's it's hard to to be virtuous and pious in that environment and realize that that you would be cutting off your nose to spite your face. And, and that, again, is that you need the world to act. There's only one atmosphere. There's only one climate. And people contribute to it differently now. Um, you know, Canada's what the, the favorite stat of, of people that don't want to take action is kind of what one and a half, two percent of global emissions. 
but we industrialized first. And so it's also hard to look at other developing nations and go, you cannot have the industrialization and development that we had. Sure. Because the planet's burning. So like these are not easy things, Ryan, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And it's not just a question of who gets to speak and and what. And it, it really is how do you blend technological innovation? And look, Stephen Harper put a lot of money into carbon capture and storage. It was probably a bit too early for that technology. It might still be a bit too early, but that's going to have to be a part of the mix. You know, looking at getting natural gas to more markets is better than burning um, bitumen. You know, so so these things, like, I wish they were simple. I wish it was as simple as Justin Trudeau's bad for having a tax. No, price signal is absolutely a part of it. Investment in, in new technology is part of it. Renewables, huge part of it. Nuclear, huge part of it. It's not no one side has has all the answers and no one side is able to do it. It'll take all of us. And I just worry my my big worry is that we're beyond the point of even having a national canvas or, or, or anymore where we can have these conversations um, in a respectful way, because there's just too many parallel conversations mm. happening and too many pockets of of anger and resentment. And it's tough to get everybody in the same place to have the same conversation. And, and it feels like my facts can be as good as your facts. Um, because we have no fewer trusted sources of facts uh, mm. anymore. You know, we used to kind of trust what 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 the big three networks and and the big papers used to tell us, and and now they're on their knees, and we're flooded with a lot of bad information, and we don't know. We're not equipped to make heads or tails of that. Even the smartest person can't be an expert on everything. Oh man, I'm, I'm glad you touched on that, uh, Andrew. We've taken you a bit over time. I'll make this my last question. Sure, appreciate your perspective on this. We're talking to Andrew McDougall, uh, Trafalgar Strategies. You've you've written quite a bit about media. Obviously, you've got a lot of experience in dealing with and 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 managing media. Uh, back in October, you had a, a column in the Ottawa Citizen. People can check out your Twitter account for that um, on uh, you know basically the future of media and 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 how you think it needs to to verify, not transmit information. It, it, fascinating stuff. Uh, current federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev has established his relationship with the media as somewhat combative um, and there have been some incidents of that his availability is not always as great as everybody wants it to be but you can't deny his popularity what he's done to the conservative membership what he's done for fundraising what he's currently doing in the polls uh, still a long ways out probably from a federal election as well though in closing how, how do you see this all playing out do you think his strategy is going to work do you think he's on track to be the next prime minister of Canada? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think Pierre, you know, pe people will, will take their shots at him, but he has looked at the past two conservative leaders and said, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to apologize for who I am and what I believe in and what I do. And it's more a tone question than it is a policy difference. I think it's an attitude. And I think the country's mood has now moved over to his camp where they're looking at, at eight years of Trudeau and going, I don't feel any better off than I was. I, I feel I've been let down. I haven't had the promises kept. I, I you know, my life is, is harder. So I think he, he benefits as all opposition leaders do after time, but people just being sick with the guy that's there now. And he's captured the attitude and the tone of, of frustration that we saw bubble up through things like the, the trucker convoy, people are tired of being let down by people in positions of power. And you have a government led by Justin Trudeau that is a lot of talk and not as much action. And sometimes the action it takes is hurtful. And, and the only note of caution I'd have is that you don't want to exist in a world that doesn't have a check on power. And, and these new communication tools are great. They let you build your audience. You can speak directly to them unfiltered. 
Um, but you also need power held to account. And the best way of doing that still is a free and fair press. And we need people going into those dark corners and rooting out the stuff that, that people don't power don't want us to hear, whether that's corporations, whether that's governments. And, and you know, while that, that hurts you when you're in power, it helps you when you're out of power. And, you know, just think twice before you gut um, institutions that can get qualified and verified information out there uh, into the playing field because we need that to govern ourselves. Andrew McDougall, former comms director for Prime Minister Stephen Harper, now director at Trafalgar Strategy. You can link to what they do in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for making time for us, man, and have a happy new year. Same to you. Thanks for having me on. Yep, you bet. You can let us know what you think of what Andrew brought to the table. I thought that was pretty measured, pretty reasonable take on it. Interesting to, yeah. to hear the, the thought process behind someone who's had a very significant messaging gig and, and still does, probably more behind the scenes doing things like crisis comms. But, uh, you know, to hear the perspective of somebody that was there uh, directing communications through the Harper era, uh, his thoughts on carbon capture, obviously that's still uh, relevant. We've talked a lot on this show about the Pathways Alliance and, and and uh, the premiers, uh, in particular, Western premiers uh, bullishness, Mo and Smith in particular, on that technology to be part of the answer uh, of Canada's response to climate change. Uh, we welcome your feedback to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I love what Andrew was talking about. I agree with him that everybody's, I mean, it's it's kind of an obvious statement. We see it everywhere. Sometimes we're seeing it in our chat right now, the kind of the, the black and white, the, the team's approach, the camp's approach, where there's not a lot of people meeting in the middle and that's essentially this show's mandate is to bring on people with credibility, uh, people with experience and perspectives that we think are worth hearing out and and seeing if they pass the muster, if they if they pass the test. And, uh, you know, we, we had David Knight leg on uh, in December, former CEO of Invest Alberta, uh, with his take on the future of Canadian oil and gas. We brought on Markham Hislip and Dr. Andrew Leach after that. As a matter of fact, we're going to get to a response to, to one of those interviews in just a second. We want you to be equipped and informed enough to, to be able to have intelligent uh, and meaningful conversations with your peers, uh, with your colleagues, with your family when it comes to things that matter very much, like the future of climate on this planet that we call home. This uh, episode is happening with the support of our friends at California Closets who want to remind you that it's a perfect time of year uh, to reach out to their design team at californiaclosets.ca. The consultation is always free, and this is where they can hear your concerns, get an idea of what part of the house that you're, you're looking at transforming, where you'd like to make your investment in custom closets or storage solutions, and then they go from there. Now, you may have an idea of what might make your life easier, what may get, help you get organized, declutter. I mean, all the things we're talking about in January, but I can tell you from firsthand experience, their design team will also blow your mind with things you never thought of. Uh, so whether it's the big primary bedroom, whether it's the family art room, whether it's the guest room with a Murphy bed doubling as a home office, or whether it's the garage, they do it all at California Closets. Uh, speaking of climate, uh, climate action, going green, Canada's moves there. Kubi Renewable Energy has been a big part of that, in particular in Western Canada, is the busiest solar installer in the province of Alberta. They're in BC as well, and they're hiring right now. They want us to let you know that if you're an electrician, if you're an apprentice, if you're a salesperson, if you're an office manager, if you work in HR, whatever it is, if you've got professional experience and you're a motivated person and you want to be a part of the team that's driving green energy forward in Canada, check out the careers link today at Kubi Energy. 
www.thepodcast.ca. And we celebrated this in December when I first found out about it, how proud we were to partner with Complete Care Restoration. I mean, I'll just talk about wildfire and floods. This is their business, getting people back on their feet after disaster strikes. Their teams are working right now, as a matter of fact, rebuilding communities that were destroyed this summer. But the story I want to tell you about is what they're doing with recycled materials. You know, typically on these sites where there's been fire or flood, everything goes to a landfill. But now with Complete Care Restoration, they're the only restoration company in the province of Alberta that's recycling more than 70% of the materials that they're pulling out of job sites. Wrap your mind around that for a second. 70% of the materials out of flood and burn sites are going into recycling facilities. Talk about being a change maker. That's what they're doing. They're walking the walk at Complete Care Restoration. It was uh, back on December 20th that Markham Hislop and uh, Dr. Andrew Leach, an energy economist, joined us on the show. If you missed that episode, I mean, they get down to brass tacks. Markham talks about uh, basically Alberta's response uh, and the federal government's response, for that matter, uh, to climate change, the implications on the oil and gas industry. And we get into it from there. Really, really smart individuals on that episode. And it's worth checking out before I get to Garth's email, which is pretty critical of Markham's appearance. Why do we tee it up? Here's Markham Hislop on the show back on December. 20th. The U.S. is the world's biggest oil producer. It, it produces just over 13 million barrels a day. Alberta produces around 4 million barrels a day. Most of that is oil sands about, at about 3 to 4, 3.4 million barrels a day. And the problem is that our reserves, Alberta's oil sands reserves, are 170 billion barrels. The Americans' reserve is 44.4 billion barrels. That's a lot of decades where the Americans don't need Alberta oil. They're, so this idea that somehow Alberta is the backstop for the U.S. when they start running out of oil, it's just it's ridiculous. That was energy journalist Markham Hislop fact-checking David Knight-Legg, who'd been on the show on uh, December 19th. If you want to catch up on your listening, I encourage you to do so uh, via our YouTube channel. Thanks for subscribing or wherever you get your podcast. So Garth writes in uh, his subject line, Markham said a whole mouthful of nothing, uh, says Jespo, it feels like we've been beating a dead horse for the past year regarding Alberta's oil industry. Uh, at this point, people are set in their ways. And the funny thing is, everyone at this point is right, says Garth. Yes, he says, Alberta's oil sands are energy intensive when it comes to processing, but it's done with labor ethics, safety, and overall respect for the environment. This from Garth. Uh, he says, now, Jesper, I can literally hear you clearing your throat about orphan wells. Uh, we've talked about it a lot on the show, as we should. He says, fine, but I will not stand by and let people pretend as though Alberta's oil sands and other energy operators don't show respect for the land through reclamation and environmental standards. As somebody who has worked a day in day out in the mines in our oil sands says garth i love it the firsthand experience says i can proudly say that overall we do produce very clean oil he says i will not tolerate markham or anybody else climbing up on their soapbox to pretend as though oil producing jurisdictions that fund terrorists or proxy terrorism can carry water for alberta's energy industry i get it some people make their living being contrarians and they're entitled to their opinions so I shall continue with mine, says Garth. 
He says, as I've said, I like this shade, Johnny. You'll like this too. He says, as I've said in many messages before that you've not read on your show. I like that from <laughs> Garth. Dude, we get a lot of emails. He says, I, I'll take these anti-Alberta oil and gas yuppies seriously when they can point to a town of over 5,000 people that completely and comfortably runs their grid on renewables, driving on public and private uh, transport and staving off cold temperatures. Now, the argument is that China is the leader in renewables. Well, that's lame and misleading. He says they manufacture it, but has anybody ever stopped to ask why China is commissioning a new coal plant every month and not wind and solar? Not exactly true, Garth. He says, I was shocked at how patchy Markham's statements were, especially when a lot of your live chat uh, attendees were lining him up on his own words. He says, I'm not an idiot. I know we won't be riding barrels of oil into the next millennium, but it's what we've got now. And unless we take full advantage of our energy, then making the transition to a more sustainable source will be that much harder. We can sweet talk and virtue signal all we want, says Garth. The only thing I see working in the vast, frigid land of Canada is oil and gas to keep us from freezing our asses off. And it's full time that it gets some respect. Put some respect on its name. That from Garth. I think oil and uh, gas gets a lot of respect. I think oil and gas gets a lot of love. I mean, it's is the the respected energy. I mean, I, I don't I just don't get and and thanks for the email, but why is it always all or nothing? You know, if we can't do that, if we can't run an entire city completely off the grid, then let's just trash everything. Well, uh, that's not what's happening. I mean, no matter how much you want to yell at the sky into the clouds, every country in the world every major democracy is moving more and more towards renewables so yeah. I, I don't understand well, this and it whole, makes financial well, sense as well like it course. like for entrepreneurs it makes sense people are making money off this making and they're going to continue to make it. more and more money and people saying well it, yeah let's keep some nuclear let's keep some oil and gas around for the frigid months of course but yeah. it doesn't mean you blow everything else out of the water it's just 100%. silly we also got an email from gabe uh this uh a, a while ago gabe said listen uh, liberals have done more to harm climate change policy than conservatives have uh, just by ignoring and pretending it doesn't exist he says liberals hung basically their entire environmental platform on the carbon tax and now that house of cards is falling down we kind of just talked about that with andrew uh, he says, and what are we left with? Like planting trees? We're now collectively getting shafted to fund corporate subsidies for carbon capture. We are deeply unserious as a nation. Uh, for sure, though, let's all parrot the conservative talking points that natural methane gas is the transition fuel of the future, and it's all China and India while we mindlessly keep buying all our useless, your muffs, kids, all our useless shit off Amazon, most of it made in China anyway, says the conservatives have made no secret uh, what their messaging is and will be on the environment. They don't have a plan, uh, but the inevitable push for massive oil expansion, pipeline expansion, and the continued decimation of the lived environment for jobs is just reality. This from Gabe. He says, the corporate Western world decided decades ago to center manufacturing in China, India, and other Asian countries to slash labor costs and increase profits. Uh, and now we're going to get on our moral high horses that Canada doesn't contribute much to global emissions in comparison. How nice of us, says Gabe. Uh, per capita, Canadians produce well over twice the global average and are one of the most carbon-producing populations in the world. Uh, per capita, he's right. He says we get to greenwash ourselves into pretending that this is the other part of the world's problem. They've not even benefited even close to the amount that we have. Andrew just touched on this. 
He says, one example I love is that BC gets to tout all its emissions reductions while all the emissions from the wood pellets they ship by boat to Britain get burned to produce electricity there. Well, those aren't factored into BC's reporting. Uh, Gabe, what about coal and natural gas and, and other fossil fuels from Alberta? He says, and on and on the greenwashing goes. And here's some real talk, he says. Why do we not talk about class when it comes to climate change? He says, I, I saw a quote, a salient one. Uh, the richest 1% of the world's population produced as much carbon pollution in 2019, four years ago, five years ago, as the 5 billion people who make up the poorest two-thirds of humanity. He says, why don't we talk about this every day? The richest 1% in North America is one thing, but it's obscene how those people are living. But collectively, North Americans are in the top percentages globally, right? How many environments, how, how many homes for indigenous populations around the world are being utterly destroyed so we can drive 9,000-pound electric trucks? Have you seen the new electric Hummers? These things are unreal. Uh, he says... How fucked in the head are we? This from Gabe. <laughs> we can see what's talked about, how it's talked about, and the proximity to power and profit. And we know how decisions are made at the end of the day. I mean, Canada could tax the hell out of luxury yachts and private planes or even ban them all together. But do you, he says, do we have any idea how much these things consume fuel-wise on an hourly basis? What are we even doing, says Gabe, in all caps? In closing, he says, you know, we want to make ourselves feel better by saying, well, I don't own a yacht. I don't fly private. It's hilarious that affordability is talked about in reference to gas prices and not the fact that many people own multiple homes, two or three or four vehicles, have big fifth wheels parked for like 95% of the year. They store their snowmobiles, quads, side-by-sides, and big boats at the cottage and yet don't consider themselves part of the global 1%. It's pathetic how little of a spine our politicians have when talking straight to people about how we live and the actual unsustainability of it. It's insulting. And I get that we're going to fight tooth and nail to maintain what we're used to, but electing politicians who lie to us so that this can continue is only kicking the can down the road to when reality will really bite us in the ass. But good thing that the 14 cents off that carbon tax will disappear soon. And, and just when Shell takes those 14 cents and rolls it into extra profit, I'm sure we'll find another scapegoat to bitch about. That from Gabe. I hope feels better you, after Gabe. writing that email. That was a good, <laughs> strong take. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. The chat is on fire today. Was there one that the jumped holidays out at you? are over, people? I can tell that. I, I saw that the somebody was. Uh, is gone. I saw that somebody was criticizing <laughs> your chat moderator oh, skills. No. Like, they, they felt that you weren't jumping in there enough. Here's what I'll say: You can say whatever you want here, and occasionally I'll try to fact check things. But I'm not here to argue with people. But like. You know, I, the harshest thing I saw today was somebody said somebody else was brainwashed. That's that's fine. I mean, if it gets a little too rambunctious. But I mean, as long as you're not, you know, swearing at people and calling them names, like just debate, debate, you know, politely. Yeah, yeah. Just, but it, it's, it's fired it, up Keep today. it simple. Gonna, but our, our, incli our, our inclination on the chat is to let it flow freely. I mean, yeah. unless you're being a real prick, uh, we're not going to jump in here. Well, and, I mean, that's kind of not the idea. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. But I start is, moderating more. People are like, free speech. You know, it's censorship like, and free speech. I got an email last year. Somebody asking me to fire you because you were censoring them on the live <laughs> chat. But you barely <laughs> stayed, Johnny. We, we had a big meeting with everybody yeah, here at Relay. I got a spanking. You were lucky to. Yeah. Your, 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 uh, what's it called? Your, um, uh, uh, probation will be lifted soon. Oh, so great. Congratulations on that. <laughs> congratulations on that. Um, Charles Adler, 
when he joined us. And Chuck will be back with us, by the way, on Monday. We're looking forward to that. It'll be the first interview of 2024. But when Chuck uh, talked to us most recently, uh, late December, um, we talked about the obviously horrifically sad story of, of Jaskret Singh Sidhu. He's the man that caused uh, the accident outside Tisdale, Saskatchewan, that claimed 16 lives, uh, injured seriously, 13 other people. Uh, obviously one of the most horrific stories in Canadian history, the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. And uh, it looks like Mr. Singh will be deported for this. We are asking you whether or not you think he should be. And in an unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll with about 3,000 responses, uh, off the top of my head, I think it was 84 85% of you said he should not be deported. But Charles Adler strongly disagreed with that. You break the law and you kill our people, I want you to the hell out of here. And uh, if there was a way to have him uh, deported sooner and have his have him serve his sentence in India, I would have been totally fine with that. Yeah, I, I, I don't agree with you. And uh, I, I, you know, if he was impaired uh, during the crash, maybe it would have been different. If, if, if there was malice, I would feel different. If it was a shooting spree, if he stabbed people, it doesn't seem like the right move. It's he did he didn't go out and intentionally murder people. I, I I think that deportation, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like it fits. It's not an accident. It is a crash. He blew a stop sign. Uh, he was obviously uh, driving a cargo that had the opportunity uh, to kill people, which is exactly what happened. And I've uh, I guess uh, I, I'm not as fortunate as you. Uh, to have an unlimited amount of uh, compassion in this situation. That's not, a, that's not me taking a shot at you. I'm, I'm here to say that you're probably a better human being than I am. I'm a flawed human being, and all my compassion goes to those kids and their parents and their sisters and their brothers and their families. So that was uh, Charles Adler on the show. That was back on December 18th. If you want to see that full interview and it uh, prompted a, a major response and uh, we, we got a ton of emails on that. Um, I wanted to read one in particular from Carolyn uh, who wrote in uh, said uh, she wrote this just a few days before Christmas uh, subject line. Charles Adler is on the naughty list said Carol uh, Carolyn uh, said if I could give Charles a spanking right now I would. Uh, his comments on Jaskarat Singh Sadhu were abhorrent. Uh, she said, this is not an issue of compassion and who Charles is reserving his compassion for. It's a matter of reason. It is not reasonable to deport a man for this accident. And yes, it was an accident. He was set up for failure and the blame rests squarely on the shoulders of the company that wanted to save a buck and didn't properly train him to drive a semi. And the Saskatchewan government for ignoring the calls from area residents to fix that problematic intersection. Carolyn says we should note that many of the Humboldt families have stated that deportation was not what they wanted. Um, I'll insert an editor's note that many have stated that it is what they've wanted. There's not consensus with those families. And also, let me say that none of us can possibly walk a mile in their shoes. Carolyn continues and says, I was especially irritated with Charles invoking the phrase, our people. Uh, what the hell does that mean? The Canadians? Because his birth certificate wasn't issued by the Canadian government either. Uh, maybe we should go through Charles' driving record. Uh, any speeding tickets? Uh, is It's likely that there's a red light camera ticket in there somewhere. That's breaking the law as well. Perhaps he should start packing his bags. What about his parents? They came to Canada as adults, just like Mr. Sidhu. 
Shall we check their records? Now, she says, now get ready to get mad at me, but I don't think that Charles meant a black and white issue. I think he meant a brown and white issue because he clearly has different standards for his white self than he does for brown immigrants from Asia. That from Carolyn, who wrote in to talk at ryanjesperson.com and pulled no punches. Yeah. The our people comment was an interesting one. You come here and kill our people. Yeah. It was kind of like Don Cherry. A little reminiscent of the Don Cherry comment. Didn't like that. But love Charles. Can't wait to see him on the show. He's back after the holidays. Charles has made a career of lighting a fire under people, getting people to think. And and every once in a while, I mean, I've found myself in this situation before. You have a gut instinct take on something. Sure. You decide to go to the wall with that take and you end up pissing off a lot of people. Not everyone, even if you think you know someone's opinion, like that surprised me that day. And people just have... I think Charles did too. Like you said, a gut feeling and he's, he's entitled to say his opinion. I don't think Charles is one bit racist at all. I think he just like the rest of the country that day. It, that was a, I don't remember a Saturday in the last 10, 20, other than nine 11, I don't remember a day where everyone was just somber as heck across the country. So I'm sure Charles still feels that. Yeah. You, you remember, I mean, there, and there have been other crashes like the, the Manitoba bus crash that killed a bunch of seniors, but for some reason, and we don't necessarily need to get into it uh, right now or we can, um, it, it, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but like it didn't resonate as strongly for, for whatever reason with Canadians. Um, you look at other tragedies that were happening around that time. Uh, we don't need to compare tragedies or stack them up against one another. But, but uh, I mean, who will forget that that uh, Muslim family that was mowed down and mm. murdered uh, by a guy driving a vehicle on a walking path intentionally uh, killing these people? Mm-hmm. And 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 you look at you know at at, at the 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 crowdfunding uh, that was happening at that time in the initiatives, and you look at the tens of millions of dollars that were raised uh, in in the context of one tragedy, comparatively, and, and, yeah, and, and almost no attention paid to the others, and and some people rightfully will ask the question, why is that? Uh-huh. Uh, but it's a very uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people, and it gets people really fired up. It and sure does. During that time, man, with the, the stuff going on, and we've had guests on, and we've talked about it before. The stuff going on on Twitter, the stuff people were saying was straight from their gut, and I, I don't know. I like this show, though, because people, it's real talk, right? But but during that crash, there was a, I, I just stayed off Twitter because people were saying some horrible things on both sides, which I thought didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, Tony writes in, says, I, I just didn't like the phrase, our people, says Charles is a wordsmith. I don't he think could, he meant to he say it like that. He could have chosen his words better. Uh, if he could take it back, maybe he would. Um, we're getting a ton of great comments here. And in just a second, I want to get to Jillian's email on the PWHL, she says she can finally enjoy hockey again. We'll find out why in just a second. But first, uh, we wanted to recognize the Real Talk uh, partners that have made this episode possible, including our friends at Eden Landscaping. It's a perfect time of year to start the conversation about your backyard or front yard transformation, about how you're going to bring your outdoor space to life. I know nobody's thinking about landscaping in January and February, but if you want the construction materials ordered, you're going to go get some beautiful rare type of boulder rock i love the big boulders in the front yards or maybe you're going to put some cool pergola in there for your outdoor kitchen that's going to require shipping from somewhere else you don't want to rely on that supply chain be up against the wire you want it done on time so why not start the conversation today the design process is a breeze with mike and his team 
because they're great listeners. They're not designing your yard for a magazine. They're designing it for you at Eden Landscaping. You can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Our friends at Friesen Brothers have new offerings, uh, including uh, Mike's Meals. And uh, these are some of the best meals you're going to find. Friesen Brothers in 16 different Alberta communities. Soon to be 17, by the way. We're just a few months away from the grand opening of a new uh, Central West Edmonton location. I can't wait to tell you all about that. In that traffic circle on 142nd, everybody's been wondering, what's the big tenant coming in on that big renovation job? It's Friesen Brothers, and we can't wait for their big grand opening. Friesen Brothers is all about family experiences, and that's why in their Family Essentials Flyer, through the month, you can find quality food ideas for low prices every single day. Friesen Brothers founded in 1955 has always been focused on family and their easy family meal solutions flyers is a great resource for people that are looking for healthy easy to make nutritious and affordable meal ideas you can find that family essentials flyer either in store or online at friesen.com and our friends at Grand Dog Essentials, uh, by the way, how cool was it that they sent us the Grand Dog calendar? Oh, I, I love that. that yeah. You can go online Stocking if you want to learn stuff. more about that. Check this out at granddog.ca. The Grand Dogs of 2024 calendar. They did a photo contest, and it was so much fun. It showcases the Grand Dog Raw Pack. So these are like their customers. These are the families. You get to see the dogs in the calendar, plus there's great nutrition tips for every month. A great resource. You can buy yours online at granddog.ca. That's also where you can shop for all their products, including quality raw food for dogs and cats. Yeah, that's right. Cats as well. Plus, they deliver to your door in Edmonton, Calgary, and Central Alberta. The promo code REALTALK takes 10% off your first-time order. You can learn more by checking out the blog link at granddog.ca. Very well done, Johnny. Ryan, I feel like we should tell people about our upcoming event as well. Which one is that, pal? You want to talk we'll about talk the pond, pond hockey, hockey classic? classic. Yeah. You're feeling it? What? I'm so excited for this. Okay, well, why don't we get to why don't we get to the PWHL email oh, first, and then yeah. I'll because what I want to do is load you up smooth into it. Uh, I, I want, ruined well, it. I ruined it. You didn't ruin it at all. But <laughs> I want to load up because we've got some great drone video from uh, for the people ah, watching on YouTube. Some great drone incredible. video. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, just just search on YouTube Real Talk Pond Hockey Classic 2023, and you can watch it yourself. Coming up Saturday, February, going to be amazing. So fun. Uh, it's one of the best days of the year for sure. Uh, the PWHL, uh, new women's hockey league, is is garnering a lot of attention. Uh, some early games have seen great turnout. Although I, I saw some criticism around the crowd in Boston the other night, but but teams in Toronto and Ottawa, Minnesota, Montreal, Boston, Boston, and New York. I don't know. Just was, I guess there were some empty seats, and and, and oh. people were discouraged about that early in the season. But it's got to catch on. It's in its infancy. Yeah. But these are the best female hockey players in the world uh, that finally have a league where they can showcase their talents and, and obviously inspire the next gen of PWHL superstars. Uh, it prompted an email, and, and this league is, again, just a few games into its inaugural schedule. Jillian wrote in uh, to talk at RyanJesperson.com. She says, I can finally enjoy hockey again. Uh, she says, Jespo and Johnny, I hope you guys have been watching the PWHL. It's been glorious. She says, Montreal versus Ottawa was lit, and I can't help but feel sorry for Toronto's awkward start, but I also just laugh at Toronto being, well, uh, Toronto. Uh, let's check out the standings. Uh, Toronto, oh, they're 0-1. That's no big deal, uh, but uh, there you go. 23 games remaining on the schedule. She says, I forgot how much I love hockey. 
Jillian says, I used to absolutely love it. Growing up in Montreal, Habs games were on all the time at my house. I'd watch Olympic hockey in my bedroom, uh, too stressed to watch it with my family. I would hang on Don, Don Cherry's every word. He would say things like, we won't get the first goal, but we'd win. And then that would happen, says Jillian. When I was studying in Sweden, uh, one of the only Canadians in my dorm, I watched Canada lose to the Czechs as Dominic Hasek basically was a wall in goal and carried the team to World Cup glory. Uh, do you remember that? Canada losing to the Czechs in 98? Oh, it was a rough one. Uh, that was like when Gretzky was kept out of the shootout. Yeah. And it was my first sports bet because yeah. I thought it was guaranteed money and I lost it all. As well, a how would you even bet in 98? It. I don't remember. I think it was Sports it Select. Like- I think you could go to like seven. Go into the gas station and, the, like and the fill pencil. out the pencil yeah. thing, like the old multiple choice test. Uh, Jillian, sorry, uh, I was just uh, I have PTSD over that. Uh, Jillian says um, uh, other international students pounded on my door, knowing that I was watching, celebrating with me, or taunting me, depending on how the games were going. I remember my anger watching hockey abroad as game intros and outros mocked Team Canada. It was clearly because we were uh, obviously the team to beat, but it was shocking how much we were disliked. Those pesky Canadians who dominate the game. She says, yeah, I, 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 I loved hockey, but gradually over the last decade, the love of the game was sucked out of me. I don't need to rehash the individual player scandals, uh, but ultimately I didn't have the cognitive dissonance to go and cheer for a bunch of guys who I wouldn't want to meet drunk in a bar. Fair comment. She says attending games in the past also meant ice girls and scantily clad cheerleaders uh, because the league had no clue what fans really wanted. And then I had to watch the Habs trade P.K. Subban for no good reason, she says in all caps. And the league expand to everywhere in the U.S., but not Quebec City. She says, please allow me this pettiness. Now, when I originally moved to Edmonton, says Jill, I I thought there'd be a women's team here. Montreal had Les Canadiens. uh, Toronto had the Fury. Calgary had the Inferno. Why didn't we have the Oilerettes or something? Can you imagine if they were called that? Uh, She says, anyway, I gave up on the NHL a while ago and you think it's okay. I've got Team Canada. Well, once again, says Jillian, toxic masculinity came to suck out the joy. As mentioned before, I didn't have the cognitive dissonance to cheer for a team of guys because some of them are okay. Uh, The lowest moment for me was probably seeing all the pro guys have nothing to say about the treatment by women of other players or juniors, but standing up for multicolored tape, for pride tape. And they got praised for it. It was just so weak, says Jillian. And then when all hope seemed lost, when hockey is probably at its darkest moment, the Women's Pro League arrives. Hockey is back on in my house. I sit uh, with my kids to watch players that I can be proud of. I know the atmospheric games will be fantastic and safe and inclusive. Jillian says, I'm ready to give this league all my time and money. Take my money. Not only have these professional women more than earned this, hockey fans deserve this. She says, Team Montreal already has my heart, but I'm cheering for all the women as I'm just so proud. I'm also over the moon for all the young girls who know that they can now play pro. I can't believe that a young woman will be able to have a proper pro career in hockey. I can hardly believe it. And I can't wait for the league to expand out west. And who knows, maybe Quebec City will finally get a team again. I love hockey again. I fucking love <laughs> hockey again, says Jillian. Peace Amazing out. That email. was a great email. Yeah, a tough, uh, that, that OT thriller. A tough one for my good friend Emrys Mashmeyer, the uh, goaltender for Ottawa. Yeah. I played her wedding this summer. Uh, just an amazing, I was watching. I was like, oh, I felt so bad for her. But. The, the thrill of it, you can you could feel it like th- this is going to catch on, right? But with the expansion, I, I don't know. They need to be financially viable in those markets. Yep. Toronto, New York, uh, Montreal. 
and then think about coming out west. I know people are thinking, why doesn't Edmonton have a team yet? But when you start expanding out west, you got to think about like travel costs, hotel, all that stuff, which which they need to be stable in those those three markets first, right? In the in the east, uh, but but it looks so promising. I mean, the checking and everything that's going on. As I just told you, I, I I'm like I'm unsure if checking is allowed or not because there was so much. There's a lot of it's, going it's, on. It's not. Uh, like, yeah, it's physical. Like, I thought hockey, it was a rule. Sure. There's no. I think that I, I don't want to say the wrong thing here, but I think that most hockey fans, the sort of the general consensus I'm getting from people that are watching, and I've watched two of the games uh, already, the PWHL games, uh, most people are are impressed at the caliber of play. Mm-hmm. Not to suggest that people didn't know that, that like, you know, Poulin and other women are, like, incredible players, but I think, generally speaking, the caliber of that league uh, is, is, is really top tier. It's yeah. top shelf right mm-hmm. now. I've seen some of the rip daddy, like, shots from the slot you're like geez like <laughs> yeah. rip mommy i guess but but like <laughs> but uh yeah really exciting stuff the wnba launched with uh i think eight teams when it launched it's yeah. got 12 it's, it's soon to be 13 um not to say it can't grow um cool to see i, I saw the the patch the shoulder patch on some of the sweaters like canadian tires stepping up with a big sponsorship yep. uh you remember i they've, they've pulled their hockey canada sponsorship so maybe maybe you'll mm-hmm. see some evolution over there and yeah. uh but yeah i mean if you get you start getting three four five six seven thousand people to games and consistently selling season tickets it's selling merch, selling sweaters, all the things that, that contribute to the viability of any pro sports team. Uh, that's going to be a good thing for, for not just the future of women's hockey now, but but down the line. Yeah. And if we get a longer season, I think there's what, there's only like 24, 24 30 games. games or, yeah. yeah. So once the season gets longer and then like more hockey is just always good. Yeah. It's never a bad thing. Yeah, Lorraine says checking is allowed, but no open ice hits. That's that's yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. Kind of interesting. But I and did see. But what happens I with did see incidental? Some. What I feel like the refs contact? put their whistles away because they were like, "We're just gonna let like we want this to be a great launch." Because yeah. I saw some that were. Not not like straight open ice, but I was like, wow, I didn't think that was allowed. Right? Yeah, so. I, I love I love the uh, the uh, the shorthanded goal killing a power play. Oh, that, I think that that is a really that's a really neat rule. I'd love to see that uh, in the NHL and other international hockey. Uh, coming up on Friday's Real Talk, we invite you to join us as the stars of Steel and Vance will join us. That's right, Linda Steele and Jody Vance are going to wake up early from the West Coast uh, to spend some time with us. As it'll be, uh, of course, our first Real Talk roundtable of. Of the year plus the flamethrower presented by our friends at the dqs of northwest edmonton and sherwood park gives you a chance to get whatever off your chest that needs to be blown off out there into the universe uh, via this microphone send us an email with your rant labeled the flamethrower to talk at ryanjesperson.com thanks for you and supporting this show we appreciate you Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. 
Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.